Well, friends, why are you here? Why are you here? Why did you show up to this place today with these people? Is it because it's your routine? Was it because it's what you've been doing since you were a child? Is it because you wanted to see what these Christians are all about? Was it because you were scheduled to work in children's ministry? If that's you, you need to hurry and get there. They've already started. I'm consumed with this question of why. It's a question I find myself often asking, and I think it's because the question of why really gets at the foundation of things. It gets at the purpose for something, the very motivation, the very reason for something's existence. It's happening. So why? Why are you here today? At the ground level, why did you show up in this place with these people on this day? Too often we overlook questions like this. Too often we just go about business as usual. Too often we don't ever question the reason of why we do something. But today, if I may be so bold, I want to say if if you do not have a good answer to that question of why you gather here today, by the end of the sermon, maybe you shouldn't come back next week. Why gather together at all? This spring and summer, we are looking at the story of a gathering of sorts. We have been starting our journey through the book of Acts, seeing how Jesus, now ascended into heaven, continues his work of building his church through sending his Holy Spirit to work through his followers in these early days. And we've seen so far that Jesus himself gave these early followers one mission, He gave them one title. They were to be his witnesses to tell of his mighty works seen most brilliantly in his death and resurrection and ascension. That the God man gave himself over to death upon a cross and showed this defeat over death and Satan and sin by rising from the dead. And these early followers and and their leaders known as apostles are called to be these witnesses To this truth, these messengers of God, ones who had been with him, who had walked with him, who had learned from him, and who had been chosen by him, commissioned to lead this kingdom expansion. But before they could do that, they had to wait, we saw. They had to return to Jerusalem and wait. To wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, who, as we saw a few weeks ago, came as a mighty rushing wind and with fire from above. We considered how the presence of wind and fire, of cloud and fire throughout Scripture is a symbol of the meeting place of God and man. And now as the wind has come, as the fire has settled, we find that God's redeemed people are now the very place where God and man meet. As followers of Him and dwelt with the Holy Spirit now become the very temples of God themselves. And this initial indwelling that we find in Acts 2, well, it brought some amazing things, didn't it? Most notably, the early followers began speaking in other dialects, in other languages from around the world. Speaking in languages that they couldn't have just learned by watching a few YouTube videos. 
Now imagine you're there. You come running when you hear this crazy, loud noise. You see these guys, obviously from Galilee. But they are talking all different languages, one or two that you understand. Otherwise, it all sounds like Greek to you. Original language joke. So you're there and your buddy leans over and he says, it's a little early to be cracking open the old wineskins, isn't it? And then this guy Peter stands up like some kind of leader and he starts shouting over everyone. He says, these guys aren't drunk, but are filled with the very spirit of God, just like the prophet Joel said would happen. And Peter declares all this has to do with Jesus. Yes, that Jesus This Jesus from Nazareth delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter goes on to say that King David knew all about this. That Jesus would be raised from the dead and and he claims this prophecy. And the spectacle of fire and languages are proof that Jesus really is our long-awaited Messiah. And he's actually the very one who went to heaven and sent the Spirit down. And he drives all this home by closing his proclamation with, Let all those of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Both Master and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now imagine you hear all of this. At first you're skeptical, just just like your friends. But as Peter begins to explain the scriptures, the words, they start to stick. The truth, it starts to settle in. You think back to when Jesus was on trial. You, You were there after all. How you shouted with both anger and joy all at once. Crucify him. Crucify him. Now your heart begins to beat wildly in your chest. You feel what can only be described as a a realization of your unworthiness. Of your wrongness. Of your sinfulness. And conviction of your sin starts as a trickle and then quickly becomes a flood. Which brings us right back to where we left off last week. Friends, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me again to Acts 2, verse 37, where we'll pick up the story again. If you're new to the Bible, or maybe you left yours at home, you can always grab the Bible there in front of you in the pew. Acts 2, 37 is found on page 856 in that pew Bible. When you get there, just look for that little 37. That's where I'll begin reading here in a minute. And as always, if you don't have a Bible of your own, friends, we do have some Bibles for free with some other resources on the back table. Please grab one of those on your way out. We'd love to give you a Bible. Go home, begin reading it and asking for the Spirit to give you eyes to see as well. As you turn there, let me invite you to stand with me once more in honor of the reading of God's Word. Friends, this is the Word of the Lord to us today from Acts 2, 37 through 47. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Friends, as we come to this passage this morning, there's a lot for us to unpack in just these few verses. As we consider what it looked like to be spirit-empowered people. Last week, from Peter, we heard a spirit-empowered preaching. and Today, we find a spirit-empowered people. And how God continues to make spirit-empowered people to this day. So I want to come at this text today revisiting the text that I closed with last week in 37 through 41, and then end today by looking at 42 through 47 and how it gives shape to a community. So if, if you're the note-taking type, let me go ahead and give you my three points or three parts of the sermon today. You can write these down. Part one is the reaction, and we see this in verse 37. Part two is the repentance, and we see this in 38 through 41. And then part three is the relationships in 42 through 47. So we have the reaction, the repentance, and the relationships. As we explore each of those today, my prayer for us is that as we look at this early gathering of Christians, we would come to understand what it looks like to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, both personally and as a people gathered together here in his name. So let's start by looking at the two parts of their response, both the reaction and the repentance. Look back at verse 37, the reaction. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Last week I closed our time by considering this verse. But I want to come back to it today because it again lays the groundwork for everything that's about to take place. And so this verse, I think, gives us insight into everything that we're about to see. So let's spend a little bit of time here this morning. Just again consider what had happened. Those who were listening to Peter, thousands and thousands of Jews who had come together because of the rushing wind of the Holy Spirit, they have just been accused of crucifying Jesus. And the tension was tight. Why? Because Peter was right. It was true. They were guilty. At first, they reacted with amazement when they saw the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples. But after Peter's sermon, their reaction is marked by something else. Verse 37 again says they were cut to the heart. I can't emphasize this enough. Because I think it's so central to understanding our Bibles. And it's so central to understanding ourselves and understanding, understanding how change and growth happen in the Christian life. And it is that the heart is the center of who a person is. 
The heart is the control center of a human. It goes far beyond emotions to our deepest desires, our wants, our affections, our loves. As theologian Jamie Smith has said in his wonderful book, you are what you love. Or to put it in Jesus' own words, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here we find these people are cut to the heart. God's word brought to them by Peter. Remember, he's just quoting the Bible, explaining it, and applying it. There's a definition for preaching for you. The word brought by Peter to bear on their lives and their decisions to crucify Christ. Now their hearts have been opened. Opened how? By cutting, by slicing, by exposing. We find that their exposure is too much to bear. This is what we call conviction of sin. Just as Jesus promised in John 16, 8, that when the Holy Spirit come, He would come convicting the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's exactly what conviction is as we see it here. It is this feeling of the guilt and the weight of your sin. Many of us have felt this in our lives. Many of us feel it today for unresolved sin in our lives. I wonder if you've been convicted or are convicted of your sin. Have you felt the weight of of turning away from God and and turning away from the life that, that holiness demands? Here these Jews who had killed Jesus were made aware of their guilt before God. And they stood convinced of the inability to save themselves. As one Puritan has said, the law of God came and did its work. Now it's time for the Spirit to come and do His. I said this last week and I'll say it again here. When sin and death and hell are faced head on and the good news of salvation of Christ alone is declared, the Holy Spirit saves. And it is an utter amazing thing. It is a mystery of how it happens. But the gospel is good news with the power unto salvation. This is why, Christian, in your personal evangelism, you cannot sweep sin under the rug. The darkness and the depravity of sin cannot be set aside in our presentation of the gospel. But they must be faced head on so that when the good news of Christ is declared, the Holy Spirit can come and save. This is the first step for all of us in receiving salvation. It is being convinced, not just in our minds, not just a change in our behaviors, but to be pierced to the heart, cut to the heart, that we are indeed sinners and in desperate need of help. For some of us, this realization is all too real. For some of us, we live under constant conviction. We live with the weight of our sin still upon our shoulders. I know some of you do. You're constantly battling with the weight of your sin, both past and present, fearful of what's coming ahead. Your hearts are burdened and heavy. Friend, if that's you, don't worry. Peter responds to the question of what shall we do. 
But for others of you today, we take our sin much too lightly. We don't sit under conviction when we should. Instead, we relish in our sin and and attempt to to sweep it under the rug, to to hide from it. We believe that if, if we run long enough, our sin won't follow us. If we dig deep enough in the woods of our hearts and and bury it deep enough in a hole, its sin will not scratch and claw its way back out. But friends, that is no way to deal with your sin. Today, have you come face to face with your sin? Though we were not the ones crying crucify outside of Jerusalem so long ago. We have cried out that his death was necessary by our very own attitudes, actions, and yes, even our hardened hearts. We have shown that Jesus' death was necessary to deal with the death that our sin deserved. So friend, has the Holy Spirit cut you to the heart and convicted you of your sin today? Then, if so, we ask with the crowd, brothers, what shall we do? Well, let's look in part two at Peter's response and repentance. Look back at the text. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, we find here that the only proper response to being cut to the heart and being convicted of our sin is the response of repentance and declaration of salvation. But what does this mean? What is Peter actually saying here? Because this is a wonderful verse to plaster on a wall, but do we actually know what he means? You see there in verse 38 that Peter uses four different phrases in a bit of parallelism. Big word, parallelism. What does it mean? We'll look back. Let me tell you. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Two commands. Two proper responses. And then he gives two promises to go with these commands. For the forgiveness of sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So each command has a promise attached to it. Do you see that? Repentance, command. Forgiveness of sins, promise. Be baptized, command. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, promise. So what exactly are these commands? Well, taken together, they are nothing short of a public declaration of a change of allegiance. See, this whole idea of the kingdom of God is something that we vastly underestimate in our lives. But it is the very thing that Jesus has said he has come to do from the very beginning. You remember the apostles asked him, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he says, well, that's not for you to know. But I'm here to not just reach Jerusalem, but I'm here to reach the ends of the world with my kingdom. And so what Peter is calling them to here is nothing short of a change of allegiance. We see this starts with repentance. We see that repentance is the only proper response to the gospel. Repentance is the only life-giving response to feeling the conviction of sin. We find that nothing else will do. This is why we find John the Baptist calling for repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Luke 3. This is why we find Jesus beginning his ministry in Mark 1 by saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
This is why the disciples in their very commissioning by Christ received the call in Luke 24. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Friend, what is the call sign of this kingdom? It's here. It is his name. It is his name name that shows that it is his kingdom but what is this call to repentance it's one of those words as christians we can just assume we all know what it means like we have some sort of hive mind in this common definition but it's a word that we so often overlook we find here now a basic definition in peter's response repentance is the turning around of the whole man It's far more than a one-time prayer. It's far more than a a change of mind. It's not even just a change in behavior. It goes so much deeper than those things. Repentance includes a true sense of sin and a hatred for it. As well as a decisive forsaking of sin and self-sufficiency. Repentance is an embracing of Christ through faith and discipleship. Which means what? Which means repentance is not just the mark of our initial response to Jesus Christ, but should mark every part of our lives as Christians anytime sin rears its head into our lives. Repentance is a daily act for the Christian. Again, because it is the only proper response to the gospel. And so Christian, let me just say this. If you do not find yourself repenting daily for your struggles with sin, then maybe you're missing the gospel. You're missing the glory of Christ and what he's called you to. And that's what we see here, isn't it? Peter calls all to repent, not only for their involvement in the crucifixion of Christ, but also for their condition of their heart. It goes beyond just a heart condition or a mind condition. They're not called to just change internally, though. But he also gives them this external mark as well. That's precisely what the call to baptism is here. Now, Acts certainly teaches us a lot about baptism. And we have several other key passages that we're going to look at over the coming months, considering how we can have a a biblically robust view of the blessing of baptism. But this morning, speaking to the first converts, Peter gives us the most foundational truth about why Jesus calls his followers to be baptized. The most foundational thing about why Jesus and why Peter and why we... Call followers of Jesus to be baptized. And what is it? It is that baptism is a public declaration of a kingdom change. It is a public declaration of a kingdom change. Peter calls these early Christians to display their repentance and their faith and their following of Jesus by baptism. An external sign of new life with a new heart. Peter calls these early Christians to show the watching world that their hearts have been cleansed by the blood of Christ through having their outer selves immersed and cleansed in the waters. Now to be clear, this is why following that command and promise model is so important here. Baptism is not the means of gaining salvation. But it is the outward expression of our salvation. Forgiveness is promised to all who repent and believe. 
And the Holy Spirit is a promised gift to each and every repentant believer who willingly declares that to everyone around them. Now, this doesn't teach us that the Holy Spirit does not come and indwell a person until they are baptized. But baptism signifies what has already taken place. But you cannot overlook the gravity of what Peter is calling them to here. So we just read over this passage and we want to just find ourselves in it and we totally miss all that has just happened. This is a far cry from the levity with which many churches take baptism today. What we have here, as, as we see here in verse 41, some 3,000 Jews, many of which who had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Ingathering, who are now declaring that their allegiance to God, the God of their fathers, who wor- they worshipped for thousands of years, is now fundamentally being changed through worshiping the Jesus of Nazareth. And the only way they can be forgiven of sin is not through the sacrificial system. It's not through obeying the law, but through turning from their sin and turning to Jesus. And they are to show that they're actually doing it through being dumped in the river for all to see. Hey, can you imagine what the conversations at that point look like? Right? You, you walk back in. Oh, hey, honey, how was the Feast of gathering this year? Well, sweetheart... We need to have a conversation. I mean, can you imagine what that looked like? It seems that Peter doesn't just intend to see this promise applied to these individuals, though. Look back at verses 39 and 40. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves. And it's crooked generation. Note the multi-directional way God intends for his gospel to go here. That he wants the gospel to go, the call to repentance and the promise of forgiveness to go across time for your children and across space all who are far off. The attention of the gospel here is to cover time and space. Peter says the promise of the coming spirit sent by the ascended Christ, is to go to those who are from you and who are among you. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy just mentioned by Peter from Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. What's more, and I think this is probably the most key thing to see about this passage, because a lot of people get tripped up on this children part. But what we find here is a great undoing of what we have just seen and read about in the Gospels. You remember, they had arrested Jesus and, and they brought him to Pilate. And Pilate has this whole trial, this whole questioning, and he finds nothing wrong with Jesus and he wants to get out of the whole situation. And so he knows that he's supposed to release one of the prisoners. He's going to offer them Jesus or Barabbas. And Barabbas was this awful criminal, so he, he assumes they're just going to pick Jesus. He's the good guy. But what do the people say? Matthew 27, this is what they say. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. 
and on our children. And here, Peter says that those children that you put the blood of Christ on, those children that you brought under the judgment of your sin, those children, this gospel is for them too. And this Holy Spirit is going to come upon them too. And this kingdom is going to include them too. So we see friends far from a passage supporting something like infant baptism or baptism as child dedication or a baptism that saves. Here we see the kingdom building nature of turning from our sin and turning to Christ with all that we are, with our hearts, our minds, our souls, and yes, even our bodies. The intention of this kingdom is to be handed to our children and to God's children all around the world. And so we see the fruit of this in verse 41. And that day there were added 3,000 souls. 3,000 people were added to the kingdom of God. Their allegiance changed. Everything about their life changed. The one that they prayed to and worshipped changed. Their experience with God through the Holy Spirit changed. 3,000 of them converted by the power of the Holy Spirit of God through the faithful proclaiming of God's word by a failed fisherman doing far greater works than Jesus himself, even when he fed physically fed 5,000. What is this? Is this some just revivalistic emotional crusade? Come on down and get dunked and you'll feel great. No. This is a clear demonstration of the very power of the Holy Spirit and a clear fulfillment of all the promises that Jesus made himself. In John 14, 12, Jesus told them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. We see here that where the word concerning Jesus Christ is open and applied faithfully, the Holy Spirit works. Friends, we don't need some emotional guitar interlude to fire up your heart. We don't need to sing 14 stanzas of Just As I Am to get somebody to come down front. We don't need some new method or model to make people like Jesus or to want to be a a part of this people. What we find here is that God and God alone is able to accomplish His plan of gathering his people through his word each and every time. As Martin Luther said regarding the reformation of the church so long ago, I did nothing and the word did everything. That's exactly what we find Peter doing here. That's exactly what we want to be about today. Because God saved them through conviction, drawing them to repentance And in their salvation, they were added. They were numbered among the followers. They became a part of this new community that God was building. As we move to consider that new community now, I wonder how you've responded to God today. How have you responded to God? Have you responded to him in repentance? Maybe you're here today and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, a follower of this Jesus. Friend, we're so thankful that you are here today. But let me call you to the line. You must have a response to Jesus and the claims he makes. You must make a decision 
of whether or not what he says and who he is and what he has done is true and real. If Jesus truly is God and man wrapped into a single person, if he really did come and, and live a perfect life, yet was arrested and beaten and then left to hang upon a bloody Roman cross, and if he willingly did that so that he could give life as his life as a payment for the sins of his people, to purchase them back from the kingdom of darkness, and to create through his death a kingdom of God, if all of that is true, for all of those who remain outside that kingdom, there is judgment and death that awaits you. Then turning from your sin, this, this repentance, is the only right response you can make. And friend, today, if you're here and the Spirit of God is, is working in your heart, don't leave here without talking to myself or one of the other pastors about what it means to follow Jesus. We'll be at the front and the back after the service. But what about this community that this repentance creates? Let's consider that last in the relationships. Picking up in verse 42 of Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, in God's providence, those who were in our foundations class looked at this passage a bit this morning during Sunday school hour. And this is a passage that we come to often in the life of our church as well. And it's because it provides us really with a framework and some basic truths about how God intends for his people to be in relationship. But you'll note I made that point plural, his relationships, the relationships. See, in these six verses, we really see three relationships emerge. We're going to consider each. So we see how the gospel doesn't just change us individually, but affects our whole lives. First, we see the people here were brought into a relationship with God and his word. That's the first relationship we note. They were enthusiastic for the preaching and teaching of the scriptures, giving evidence that a Holy Spirit-filled people is a people that desire to study and submit itself to the word of God. We see there in verse 42, look back, it says that they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. Well, are the apostles just coming up with some new gimmicks to spout off? No, what, what are the apostles teaching? This is no small thing. The apostles, while they give us a paradigm for understanding pastors and elders, were not mere teachers, but they were the, the ones with the original charge from Jesus himself to teach his followers all that he had taught them. And so the teaching of the apostles has an authority that, that my teaching today, the pastor's teaching today here, does not have. This teaching is for the people, and it, it is what deepened their newfound relationship with this holy God. It bore worship in their hearts and their minds. It caused those previously cut hearts to be mended and reconciled with the Father who loved them enough to send His Son and now live in them through the Spirit. Friends, we find here that the worship of God 
from day one of the new covenant people of God is all about this corporate aspect, this community aspect, this together aspect. While many people want to take this passage as a model for for some kind of communal living or, or having small informal gatherings in one another's homes, we actually see that there was indeed a form to their worship. Not just anyone was teaching, but the apostles were teaching, those charged with teaching. And further, we find at the end of verse 42 that not just any prayers were being prayed, but it says the prayers. The prayers, as in as actual prayers. We find in this early gathering of God's people that God's worship is defined already by God's words and, and God's ways. Now, we don't know exactly what those prayers were. There's many from the Old Testament they could have drawn from. But, but I can think of one. Jesus said to them, when you pray, pray like this. This worship of God ends there in verse 43 with a sense of awe and joyful gladness there in verse 46. Who is the awe of? Not of the apostles. Who is the joyful gladness in? Not in the community. It was in God himself and what he had done. These are the marks of God's people as they relate to him. Are we marked that way as a church? Are we marked by a sense of awe and joyful gladness? I think too often we say, well, I, I can't, can't be that way until something amazing, something flashy happens. I need something to be in awe of. Christian, please realize that as you're surrounded by fellow brothers and sisters in this room right now, you're sitting in a room full of miracles. Because God has sent forth his word and given life to dead hearts. What more of a sense of awe do we need and joyful gladness should we find? This isn't the only relationship that's affected. Second, they were brought into a new relationship with other believers. Being added to the people of God. They were committed both to serving one another as well as submitting to the leadership of the apostles. And I want to drill down on this for a second. Because what we find here is not a passage about loving strangers or, or loving those far off. But about loving those within the fellowship. And that's exactly the word Luke uses, right? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The fellowship is played out further than in verses 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The all there is not everybody in the city, but the fellowship. Now, some may want to take this passage and press Christian communism. And I think that's where many of us slip up because we attach all things in common here with possessions and belongings. You see that they come right beside each other, but we just assume it means the same thing. And while we certainly want to see sacrifice of, of personal goods and, and personal comforts for the practical means of, of building up the church. In fact, just as a side note, this, this is why this, this idea of having things in common is why we make a budget every year. It's, it's why we have a benevolence fund for those who are in special need. This is why we take one another meals in times of need. This is why we let one another borrow tools or cars or buy one another great gifts or allow our facilities to be used or, or have a clothes closet. I go on and on. We should share in those things. 
as we've been considering sin and repentance and the call of the gospel, we need to see that this all things, though, is not just limited to mere stuff. How does this flesh itself out? I think it, in part it, it's in the ways that they had their lives in common. They didn't just have their stuff in common, as if they just lumped all their goods into a giant pile and then they went back to their house so they could kick back and watch TV. But we see here that they, they the individuals, were meeting together in one another's homes Breaking bread together. They met publicly in the temple courts, living life in the culture together. They met corporately together as a body, submitting themselves to being taught by the apostles and, and praying together. But what does this mean on a basic level? Well, on a basic level, they were committed to one another. They were for one another. They were laboring alongside of it and face to face with each other. They had their lives in common. We see that the most basic level of commitment by a Christian to his church is surprisingly substantial. There's, a, there's actually a, a lot to committing to a local church. It isn't like getting a gym membership and if you never show up, they're not going to reach out. Being a part of a body of believers has some weight to it. As I re we read in 1 John 3, 16 and 17, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, friends, when, when the Bible speaks of love, it, it measures it primarily not in how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give. How much you are willing to give of yourself to someone else? How much are you willing to lose for the sake of another person? Whether they like all the same things as you and have the same preferences as you and look like you and think like you. If they're a brother or sister in Christ. How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time and emotions and resources are you willing to invest in another person? We see here that their fellowship was marked by this Christ-centered mutual affection and action, including everything from corporate worship to private conversations. So what we find is that with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, care for one another and generosity flowed freely was dictated by their love for each other. The tone of this text is not what new members that were added to the church could receive but what they could give. And just from a pastoral level, here's what I see. That the community of believers is, is started here and continues throughout the New Testament seems to be God's, one of God's main means of keeping individuals tethered to His grace. Why? It's because of the indwelling of the Spirit. We need other Spirit-indwelt people to help us along. This means that what often happens in our lives when we are not invested in the community, and I mean really invested, not just serving, not just leading ministries or showing up, but actually invested in one another, having deep conversations and opening our hearts to one another, when those things are not happening, what happens to us individually? We slip, we stumble, we fall. 
Friends, so many of us today are, are wrapped up in our own problems and our own troubles, our own worries, our, only, our, our own fears and, and felt needs. And our hearts tell us that the way that we're going to get past that is, is to focus on ourselves, to give ourselves some self-care and some self-help and some self-soothing. But the answer God gives, the answer that the text gives us, is that the way we press forward individually and grow individually and move through hardships individually is actually in the context of community. It's having our hearts in common. Now, let's simply just press here. I don't have to press hard because, one, I see and hear about it all the time in our body. But, two, I think the text and the Spirit can bring conviction where it's needed. So let me just simply ask Christians here today, how does your life, your days, your nights, your time, your energy, and yes, even your emotions, how are they being laid down and given to helping those around you and helping them love Jesus more? To put it simply, how have you helped the community around you follow Christ? We finally, though, see it moves out. It moves out. Third, they were brought into a new relationship with the world. Throughout the book of Acts, we never see a community of believers so inwardly focused that they fail to engage those outside the community with the good news of the gospel. And all that starts right here. The good reputation of having favor with all people positively impacted their public witness for Christ. Do you see that? To the point that daily they were being new repenters and believers added to their body. Daily. It's daily, y'all. Daily. New believers are being added. As these Christians were living among the world and loving the world, the Lord was taking people out of the world and adding them to the, his number. This is where I personally have felt the most conviction this week. I prayed much over myself, my family, and for you. I pray that God would so mark us out as a church, not that we're the friendly church. Friendly doesn't save anyone. But that we would be marked out as a Christ-centered, world-engaging church. That we would so love one another that the community it builds and the witness that it raises up couldn't help but be compelling to the world. We don't need some new model for, for reaching people. We don't need to become like the world to get the world. We don't need to assume their titles or, or take up their causes. We don't need to loosen up our talk about the bloody cross or try to soften our approach to the Bible. What we need are deep relationships with God and with one another and then allow that to compel us to engage with those around us, realizing that eternity hangs in the balance. Now, much more could be said about this passage. Much more. But the beautiful thing is that all that we see in this passage is now going to begin to flower and bud and grow into the rest of Acts. And so these themes, these themes of repentance and relationship and God's word and the place it serves in the life of his people are going to come up again and again and again. So if there's something that you feel like we skimmed over, don't worry, we'll get back to it. So closing, let me ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, how has your relationship with God, the church, and the world changed since you became a Christian? Think back. Could have been 10 months, 10 years, 10 minutes ago. How, how has your relationship 
with God, with the church, and with the world changed since you've become a Christian. Luke closes the chapter leaving no doubt about this reality. Everything about the Gospels and Acts tells us that God's people, when they are together, has an effect on the culture around them. Many in our culture want to push us. Much that we see drives us towards individualism. It's my way or the highway, an attitude that, that really kills community. It's, 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 so, it's so ironic to me that, that we live in a culture that, that wants to have community and, and this is my tribe and this is my lane. And yet when it comes to commitment, want nothing to do with it. But what we find here is this attitude of my way or the highway, this push towards individualism will kill community. But what grows it, what makes it beautiful, the biblical picture, the health of the community is not measured by what someone receives, but by what they give and what they contribute to one another's needs. The portrait of the early believers here shows that community and the welfare of the group was the priority. This way reflects the moving of the spirit and the maturity of the people that allowed them to grow. Here we see that the preaching was mashed by repentance, followed by community, allowing them to grow. So why are you here today? Why do we gather? Maybe it isn't the reasons that you walked through the door this morning, but I hope your answer is this from this day forward. That we gather together as the people of God, gathering for God, because it is part and parcel of what it means to be the very kingdom of God. We come together in this place during these days because we have been called out, cut to the heart, pierced by seeing a holy God in our own sinful hearts. We come together because in seeing those things, we've been drawn by the gentle hand of God to repent of our sin and turn with all that we have into the gracious hands of God. We come together because we have not been redeemed alone but we have been redeemed together. So we come together, reconciled to our merciful Father through the blood of our suffering Savior brought by the power of the Holy Spirit. We come together, reconciled to one another, seeking to build each other up through sitting under the word of God, worshiping him through prayer, through hospitality, through service, through displaying his beauty to the watching world. Friends, why are you here? The answer to bring glory to God, the God who saves, not just me, who saves us. This is the mission of the church. This is the purpose of the gathering. This is the way of the kingdom. This is what happens to hearts that believe. May it be so in this place until Christ returns. Let us pray. Father, we do need you at work among us. We cannot do this without you. So Lord, we do pray and we ask that you would work, that you would do as you see fit, that you would save and redeem, that you would draw us to repentance, to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We pray this, Lord. And we thank you for the hope that we have. You do this work in Jesus' name. Amen.